Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, best-selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple. And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach and Beyond, presented by N Magazine. We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from best-selling and award-winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers, and more. There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book. But before we head into our episode, we want to take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms. Without their generous support, we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world. So thank you. And now on to the show. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Tim. So we've been doing this a while and we haven't actually got into really talking about the craft of language. In Stephen King's On Writing, I read it earlier this year, and he says, no one ever asks popular novelists about language. So I want to talk to you about not just the craft of writing a book, but actual, the craft of writing a sentence. I mean, it's so funny because I'm finishing my last Nantucket Summer Novel, Swan Song, and I'm reading it. I, I finished the first draft and I'm reading it through and I recognize my own writing voice. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, that is such an Ellen Hildebrand line. And I, <laughs> but what? But what is it? But what is it that makes a voice and makes language? And the answer is I really don't know. Uh-huh. I think it is something elusive. But the way you put a sentence together, you know, your, your use of simile and metaphor and uh, I don't know, so many, so many things go into to writing a novel you know, moving the plot along, di- diving into the character. The one thing that I always strive for in all of my novels is specificity. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, maybe this episode we can unpack language because we have, this may be an overused phrase in the book business, but I would read our guest today's grocery list because I feel that it would be such a unique, creative collection of words on a page. So who do we have today? We are so excited. I am so excited, you guys. We have Maggie O'Farrell. And I'm going to do her intro, but I want to start by saying... This is one of my heroes, my inspiration. She is, as far as I'm concerned, writing the best writing in the English language right now. Maggie O'Farrell was born in Northern Ireland in 1972. Her novels include Hamnet, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, After We'd Gone, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, The Hand That First Held Mine, winner of the Costa Novel Award and Something I Just Finished, This Must Be the Place, which I am currently reading, and Instructions for a Heat Wave, one of my very favorites. She has also written a memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. She lives in Edinburgh. Maggie, welcome to Beach Books, and Beyond. Hi, thank you so much. It's very nice to, uh, to, to meet you both or see you both anyway. We're very, very excited. We're so excited. So let's start at the beginning. How... How did you become a writer? I want to know about you sort of growing up and and your reading habits and your interests and then when you put pen to paper and then how you got your first break. Well, that's <laughs> that's a big question. Well, I was always a reader. I've always loved stories. And although my 
my parents aren't, aren't any, in any way connected to literature or writing, but there were always a lot of books in the house and it was a very important part of our lives. So we used to go to the library once a week and we'd take out three books on our on our little library cards and then we'd go back the following weekend and we'd swap them and take three more. And my mum, my mum, my mum always read to us at night time. And my dad, and my dad would would only ever read Irish myths to us. And we used to beg him. We'd say, "Please, please, will you read Pippi Longstocking? Please, will you read Secret?" <laughs> say, no, I'm only reading these. That's the only thing I'm going to read. So at the time, it used to really annoy us because we wanted to hear something else. But actually, now I feel as though all those myths and legends that. My dad, you know, as as a kind of because we you know we emigrated from Ireland, so he I think he's one of those emigres that, you know, he's still very very Irish in his heart. He had a hip replacement recently, and he was very pleased to know that the hip, actual to the fake hip or whatever you call it, was made in Ireland. So he was really pleased that he's still a hundred percent Irish. That's the I, I in a way I'm grateful because like, those stories form a kind of bedrock for narrative, in my mind and in my imagination. But, you know, they're very much about the sort of the idea that landscape is lies that you know trees and rocks and stones have a spirit and a soul and a voice which is fantastic so and then I I was ill as a child I was very seriously ill as a child so I spent quite a long time in bed and then that's literally all I did you know this is the kind of early 80s when we didn't have as you know tv on demand or uh, I think we had very very early audio books that were on tape so I listened to those and then I read and I don't really I don't know where really the urge to be a writer came from you know there's a lot of debate isn't there about whether writers are made or born and I think it's a bit of a mixture of both but I, I can't really remember a time when I didn't have the urge to put words down on paper I think it's called graphomania I just thought only when I was young I used to spend all my pocket money on stationery I still do actually <laughs> I can show you my latest acquisition I have a real thing for <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bit I have a real thing for vintage fountain pens check this out Ooh, okay. that is beautiful. That, that is gorgeous. Listener, that is a beautiful pen. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Sage green. Oh, gold it's a fountain pen. And it's it's such a lost art. It is. I have a bit of a weakness for vintage fountain pens that work. I'm not interested in the ones that don't work. They have, they have to be, <laughs> you know, useful. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it came from or why it, why it should be, but I just always wanted to do that. And I think, I think there is a distinction between people who want to be a writer and people who want to write. It's quite an important distinction. I remember when I was teaching creative writing at university, I was always able to make that distinction between people. And I think I think I always wanted to, to write. I never even thought it was possible to be a writer. You know, I never met any writers. They all seemed to me very sort of, I mean, I always assumed they were kind of dead, you know, or they were a bit like kind of Greek, <laughs> you know, giving us their wisdom. It never occurred to me they were actual real people sitting in their homes, you know, making up stories in their pyjamas, probably. Not that I would do such a thing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so who knows? But I, I knew I always wanted to write, but I never thought it'd be possible to be a writer. That never occurred to me as, a, as an option in life. Okay, so, but then you, you did. So tell us about that story. Yeah, so I studied literature at university because I've always loved reading and I always loved books and that was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. And then after university, I did various jobs, but I ended up working as as a journalist on a newspaper, Britain, which was called The Independent on Sunday. And while I was doing that, I was in my, in my weekends and my evenings, I was writing this thing. I was actually writing poetry for a while, uh, but I was not very good. It's not a big loss to the world of poetry that I And I started writing prose and I remember having, you know, meeting up with a friend of mine in a coffee shop and him saying to me, oh, what are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. And I said, oh, I'm just writing this thing. It's a, you know, it's a short story. 
And he said, how long is it? And I said, well, at the moment, it's about 25,000 words. And he said, you're writing a novel. And I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. It's just a story. It's, it's no big deal. And he said, you are, you're writing a novel. Um, and it turned out I was. So I was a bit surprised by that. I didn't really plan to, but yeah, that, that eventually became after you'd gone. Wow. wow. And then how did you get it published, Maggie? Well, as you yourselves will know, it's never a straight line between finishing a book and or finishing your first book and getting published. I was quite lucky that I got an agent quite early in the process. I went on a writing course, actually. They have in the UK, they have this thing called the Arvon Foundation, where you do sort of residential writing courses for about a week. So I went on one of those and actually the tutors who were Elspeth Barker and Barbara Trapedo were really nice to me and they read the 25,000 of words of my long, short story. <laughs> and I thought they would say, it's really rubbish, you know, you need to go and, you know, forget this and, and don't give up the day job. But actually they said, you know, when you finished it, send it to us and we'll send it to our agent. So I was very lucky. And then I worked, I mean, I did, I, I'm a big, even now I'm a big redrafter. I worked it and reworked it. And then it was sent out to, I think, five or six publishers in London. And they all said no. So I went back and I reworked it again. And then and eventually it was picked up, yeah, by um, Tinder Press, who I'm still published by. I've had the same... Pub- oh, my gosh. I know, the same publisher, same editor, same agent, since I was whatever I was. Well, two- That's amazing, yeah, I know. actually. It's, I think it's very rare, and I'm very, very lucky. I, I thank my lucky stars every day. All those rejection letters right now are kicking their, their butts right now. <laughs> but I want to ask, okay, so this is not on my sheet, but I'm going to go off script a little bit. <laughs> So oh, I know Tim's going to be angry with me. No, um, no anger. I want to ask, okay, so you're, you've are you been published by the same publisher, editor, agent for your entire career. Britain, and listener, yeah. that is fairly, in Britain, that's fairly rare. Okay, I read, the first Maggie O'Farrell book I read was, I'm going to say it was 2017-ish. It was Instructions for a Heat Wave in paperback. What was your journey becoming the American publishing journey? What was that like? As is more typical, I've had a, a few publishers in America. I think it was Kingdom Random House and then Hatton Mifflin. And then I'm now with Knopf and I've been with Knopf for quite a while. I think, yeah. I think maybe Instructions for Heat was my first book with Knopf. I forget actually, it's a little bit of a blur, but that sounds about right. I think Instructions for Heat was the first book I did with them. So yeah, it's very, I, think, I think that's a more normal trajectory, isn't it? That you kind of move around with slightly different editors. But yeah, I'm very happy with Knopf. I love it. And I love my editor, Jordan Pavlin who sends me... Oh, yes. Yeah, she's... I'll tell you what. My very first job, here's a little off the cuff. My very my very first job out of college, I worked for St. Martin's Press and I took Jordan's job. Jordan had the job. Oh, did you? She moved, <laughs> she moved to Little Brown oh. and I took her job. And then Reagan Arthur, I worked with Reagan Arthur. Oh, okay. There. And then Reagan and I worked... She was my editor then. I mean, years later, she was my editor for 20 books. Oh. So... Was that the job you hated that you just said in the past? Yes, <laughs> yes, the job at St. Martin's. I hated it. I took I took Jordan's job, but she is she is amazing. Yeah, and so then that's where like a lot of our listeners really got to know you would have been instructions for a heat wave. Then of course Hamnet, which we'll dig into a little bit deeper than the marriage portrait. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit, but I just returned from the most magical trip to Ireland last week. I have never been. And so I'm still kind of immersed in that country. And I want to know, you kind of touched on it, but what does it mean for you to be Irish? And then how do you translate that on the page in your novels? Well, I think I, I, have, a, I have a slightly more complicated relationship with it because I was born in Ireland and my passport is Irish and my name is Irish. And, but I, as you can probably tell by the way I speak, I did not grow up there. I left when I was a toddler. So I think mm-hmm. there is a kind of sense that 
there's always a sense of dislocation, I think, if you don't happen to live or grow up in the place where you were born or the place that you might be identified, identified with, or also identifiable, identifiable by, you know, because we moved to Britain in the 70s. And of course, I don't know if you know, but yeah. relations between Britain and Ireland, which have, you know, have a very long and uh, difficult history. In the 1970s, they were a real all-time low, 70s and 80s. It, it was, you know, they were, it was a very fraught time. And so it was not that easy being Irish in Britain at that time. You know, we had, I mean, it kind of ranged from, you know, those really terrible Irish jokes, which are really wearisome, but also to teachers saying to me, you know, taking the register at school and then just saying, oh, are you coming to my name and then saying, oh, your family in the IRA or do they support the IRA? You know, which is an extraordinary question to ask a child until <laughs> yes. the rest Holy of the class. You know, I mean, I think it wouldn't be allowed to say, I hope not anyway. You know, the implication, you know, the basically the question, are your, are your family terrorists? Right. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it's a strange. So, so I think in a way, you know, I think I feel I still have a, I'm hugely proud of coming from there. And, but I think, you know, in Britain, people look at me as being Irish and in Ireland, people would look at me as being British. So I think you're all, I think it's one of those, I call it being a hyphenated person. You know, you are, you're kind of one either one thing or the other. But in a way, I think as a writer, that feeds into this sense of being an observer. You know, if you do move country and you move schools frequently like I did, when you arrive in a new environment, you have to instantly observe everybody. You've got to think, how, how do I survive in this new ecosystem? You know, which ones are going to, which people are going to be my people? Which are going to be my predators? How, how do I fit in? Am I going to blend in? Am I going to stand out? You know, it's, you've got to go through all those processes when you're young and you listen to the way people talk and the different vocabulary and the way different teenagers or kids dress in different parts of the world and you know, I think it turns you into an observer, which I think has, has definitely fed into my job, for example. And, and it sounds like your dad really tried to instill that Irish heritage in you too with the stories of the myths and everything. Oh my goodness. Yes, definitely. If my dad, so if you too uh, had a number one hit or if the Irish rugby team won a match, it was, a, it was an absolute personal triumph for him and still continues to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation to thank one of our premier sponsors, Lavango Resort and Beach Club. St. John is my home away from home and where I head every year when I'm longing for warmth of the Caribbean. My Troubles in Paradise trilogy is sent there and some of the action takes place on Lavango Key, a private island just five minutes away where my dear friends, Mark and Gwen Snyder, owners of the Nantucket Hotel, have built the most amazing resort. This place is paradise without the troubles. There is a chic beach club you can book for the day, delicious food, fabulous shopping, and truly unique accommodations made up of luxury tree houses, glamping tents, and cottages. So if you're looking for the ultimate, easy to get to winter escape where you don't even need a passport, book yourself at Lavango Resort and Beach Club today by visiting LavangoVI slash E-L-I-N for 10% off your stay. Paint me a picture of a stay or a day at Lavango. Okay, so generally I go over for the day from St. John. There's a very, very simple shuttle boat that you get on and anticipation is so exciting and you walk up the dock and then you are in like a paradise away from paradise. I mean, it is absolutely so gorgeous. So I always rent a cabana at the pool 
And it is like being in the south of France. It is like living in Instagram. It is so gorgeous. The food, the food is delicious. The drinks are fabulous. We did it the first year that they had it. And before anything else was built, they just had the pool in the cabana. And it was the most fun we had on St. John's. So thank you, Mark and Gwen. And thank you, Lavango. Thank you. Okay, so your books are set in a variety of places. I'm presently in the middle of This Must Be the Place, which is set Same. in New York and in LA and in Ireland. And I want to talk about how you research place because obviously I also read The Marriage Portrait, which is set in Italy. And um, how do you research place? How do you decide where you're going to set your novels? And have you spent any time in the United States? Well, I have, yeah. I first came to the States, I think when, how old was I? Probably in my 20s. And I have a friend, still, he's still a very good friend of mine. She had an aunt who lived on the upper west side of New York. And we went to stay with her and that was amazingly exciting. You know, I think coming to New York is always an extraordinary experience for people outside the US because you come there and you sort of know what it's going to look like. And then it really does. You know, I remember being amazed that taxis were actually yellow. You know, it wasn't yellow. Yeah. <laughs> it was all that kind of iconography. And the steam actually just come up from the street, which is... You know, for us, that's incredibly thrilling because we've seen it on a thousand film sets and a thousand TV shows. And then to see it is, is very peculiar. And I also went, a friend of mine was doing a PhD at Berkeley. So I went to San Francisco and I went to LA. And yeah, and that, and that was amazing because it's so, I mean, you kind of imagine that America's going to be a uniform, but of course it isn't because you know, it's so vast right. and so varied. And so, you know, it has such an enormous melting pot of different cultures. So, but actually, I mean, in terms of setting books, in places, it, it's not that I, I don't, I mean, it's usually the other way around. I usually think about where, where my characters are from, where they're going to go, where they're going to be. And I usually will always, I usually, I usually choose places that I've been, you know, because right. I remember walking in, in California and realizing that there are all the kind of house plants that I have are right there growing at the side of the road, <laughs> which was, which is that I love house plants. I have over 75 of them. Like my children, oh, wow. <laughs> and so I mean, I'm like, and that's the thing, that, and that's very, very vivid. There's a particular light in California, which is very, is very, very different from everywhere else. And so I, you know, I think I went there when I was whatever I was, twenty three or something, and I didn't know, of course, that I at some point I would start a novel there. But then you end up doing that in a way, you know, you kind of feed in. But I would never ever write about somewhere I hadn't been because that would be, that would be really wrong. You know, I have read people. Sometimes I remember there was a. A few years ago, there was a novel came out. I won't tell you who it was, but and the publishers were saying it's amazing. Miss Perton's written this novel, and, and she's never been to London. <laughs> People in London are reading it and saying, "Yeah, really, very clear, <laughs> right?" That's like I think I maybe can guess what that is, <laughs> but we won't say it. <laughs> I won't say it. Um, I'm I'm also reading. This must be the place, and I'm just in awe at your experimenting with language and how you put a novel together. We've talked to so many authors about if you're a pantser or a plotter, meaning if you know all your plot beforehand or if you're flying by the seat of your pants. And my question right now is more specific to you. Do you know, walking in, how you want to experiment with language and crafting a novel before you go into it? Or does it kind of happen organically? No, I'm really not much of a planner in life or in fiction, actually. I don't know if this is going to shock you both, but yeah, I'm very much a pantser. And I think I think actually I've kind of learned to embrace that. I have a quote that's on my desk actually up there, which says, it's by Pablo Picasso. And he it says, if you know exactly what you are going to do, what is the point of doing it? Which I mm. I think, I mean, obviously, he, I think he was talking about visual art, but 
I think it applies to novels as well, you know, and I do know there are writers out there who will plot meticulously, but I am really not one of them. I don't know if you can see the mess behind me. It probably, probably won't surprise you. But to me, I think I've always felt that the, the point at which I feel a novel is working or it starts to kind of hum with its own life or its own pulse is when your characters start to disobey you, when you think that your novel's going to go from A to B, but actually one day your characters turn around and say, actually, we're not going to B, we're going to C. Or D, or maybe E. Hmm. And that's always the point at which you feel it kind of take on its own momentum or, as I said, require its own pulse. So I really like that. I, I welcome it. I welcome those kind of, the sort of right angles a novel will take or the narrative. You know, I, I think you have to, there's a kind of part of writing, you know, a lot of writing obviously is slog, you know, you've just got to work at it and you've got to put one word in front of the other. But I think I do kind of believe actually in a lot of the instinctive choices that you make. Uh, Rudyard Kipling talked about it being from the wrong side of your head. And there are lots of decisions that I will make. Actually, a lot of decisions that, that I feel make that just coalesce or come together. You know, and you have to trust the narrative. You've got to trust the material. And in a sense, it's a bit like water. It will find the spaces that it needs and it will inhabit all the empty, all the vacancies. But you just have to let it do that and you have to follow in a way. I absolutely agree with See, that. See, even that is beautiful. Yeah, but I absolutely <laughs> agree with that. I'm so, because I just finished my my 30th novel. Oh, okay. And I didn't know how it was going to end. I mean, I knew, I knew I was getting to the end, but I didn't specifically know. And I thought, I'll know when I get there. And then when you get there, it unfolds and it's may, maybe not exactly how I pictured it. And so much so that I'm, when I go back and do my first revision, that I'm changing everything in the front because of how it ended yeah. up, how it ended up okay. ending. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I certainly didn't know at the beginning. Like I always say, when you're creating characters, it's like moving in with a new roommate. You don't know them. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, you meet them by spending time with them every single day for six months, eight months, 10 months, whatever. And then by the, by the 10th and 10th month, you definitely know them. And then you can <laughs> very <figure> well <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I loved about this must, must be the place, which is so, con- you have to be such a confident writer to do this is your experimentation with point of view. I also love point of view. I do third person, uh, first person plural. And a lot of my novels, I do the we and in this must be the place you've third person, second person, so good, and first person. And I want to know, you also do footnotes, you do the auction items. Like, how do you make those decisions? Let's talk about that. Let's dig in there. Well, I have to say, I had a really, I had a lot of fun with this must be the place. And I did, <laughs> I did want to kind of basically let all of my impulses completely off their leads. And I really wanted to kind of stretch the possibility of what narrative could do. I wanted to find out what would happen if you completely unhitched yourself from convention in a way. And so I did it. it, it, A lot of it is about words and language and storytelling and the different. And of course, you know, there's never any straightforward way to tell a story. You know, if you listen to, say, somebody on a bus telling somebody about an anecdote that happened yesterday, they don't necessarily start in a very organized chronological sequence and often their tenses fly all over the place and they say I was sitting there and then I said to them and you said to me you know and and it's all over the place and I think in a sense that's our that is our kind of natural oral tradition in a way that's the way we tell stories they will jump about all over the place and that's the way we think about ourselves and the way our memories and our sort of psychological sense of ourselves you know the kind of I don't think we are naturally organized A to B in in a neat chronology And I think that, you know, the idea 
Behind This Must Be The Place was a story that is spread between so many people because that is what happened. We are all connected by language and linguistics and story and experience. And, uh, you know, I wanted to tell a story in the novel that isn't, I mean, it's basically about a marriage, you know, between two people, but there are so many other people involved in their marriage and in their family and their friends and their children and stepchildren. And so I wanted, it was a kind of, you know, I think the quote at the beginning, the Louis McNeese quote, the drunkenness of things being various. That's the, that's the way I wanted to, and that's the way I wanted the, the life of the novel to reflect. But I did, I mean, I was a bit worried. I, I did, you know, like I said, I did the footnotes and that, I, that was a kind of reflection of the way Niall's mind works. And then I did the auction catalog. I, I was a bit worried. I, I thought my publishers would come back and say, what the, <laughs> what is this? No, and then I, 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 also, I handed in the text and then it, when we were coming towards the final draft, I said, actually, what I really want to do is put photographs of the objects. Yeah. And amazingly, they said yes, because I felt, you know, I think there are lots of different ways to tell a story and different points of view to embrace though. So it was fun. I, I, I had a good time doing it. Well, I think it also really differentiates between the characters. I mean, we've talked about how point of view, like, is this a new character? Like each character is so different because the point of view is different. You've chose to experiment. Daniel Sullivan, the main character in this book, is a linguistics professor, and you just touched on it. You said, and he discusses how language changes. And I started this whole episode asking Ellen about language and how no one really asks about crafting a sentence. Can you dig in there and just how, can you answer that question more about like what it takes for a, the voice of an author that you have? I think there are, I mean, I think those kind of decisions in a sense, it goes back to what I was saying about leaving it up to instinct in a way. You know, there have been times when I have begun a novel, say, in, I don't know, the first person present tense or something. And then I've noticed that when I sit down in the morning and I start to write a pickup where from where I would left off the day before, or sometimes there have been times when I find that I'm suddenly, I'm, I keep slipping into the third person singular and the past tense. That happened with a book I wrote called The Hand That First Held Mine. And, and after a while, I thought, there is a reason why I keep doing this, you know, and actually I think I need to listen to that. And I realized that I had, I got it wrong. It, the book didn't want to be in the first person present. It needed to be in the third person past, which was a pain because I was already, I don't know, 18,000 words in or whatever. So I had to go back and change all the eyes to she, which is a pretty dull week, I have to say, but it was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But I think the I don't know, language has always really fascinated me. I did a course on linguistics as part of my degree. And part of that was about, you know, why we choose the words we choose and how it changes. You know, I remember learning that the word villain, which of course, you know, to us means a very evil person, used to mean a tenant farmer, a farmer that paid rent to a landlord. And the word has become, because it was used as insult, presumably by terribly snobbish people, it became, that the, the word kind of uh, has become, it become pejorized, you know, it became sort of, uh, the meaning became worse. It, it turned into an insult. And that kind of thing fascinates me. You know, the idea that it used to mean a, a fee, you know, a red paying farm, but now it means an evil person. Like the word naughty in Shakespeare's day, naughty meant seriously morally corrupt. But now you might, well, actually, you probably wouldn't use it for a child these days, but in my childhood, you would have done. Oh, sure. Yeah. I want to know the difference between publishing and readers in the UK and publishing and readers in the United States? And do you tour in the United States? And if not, would you consider it? And <laughs> you certainly hear from, I know you certainly hear from your American readers. And is there a difference? Oh, I don't know, really. I mean, to be very honest about the sort of reception of my books and who reads them is something that I'm 
really deliberately avoid thinking about. Oh. Yeah, I think it's very, I don't think it's very good for me to think about that or to have this kind of, I'm worried that when I'm writing, I might have this imaginary person over my shoulder. So I'm, I deliberately uh, steer myself away from thinking about who reads my books and what people might expect or but what I can say is that and I have taught, I did a tour of America exactly a year ago, actually. It's strange. I was looking at my phone and I had all these, suddenly these pictures of Minnesota uh, popped up. Uh, <laughs> so I was there a year ago and I felt American audiences are very, very communicative, which is very good. I mean, I don't know if it's a terrible cliche, but sometimes at the end of a, a, a reading in Britain, the, the kind of moderator will say, are there any questions? And sometimes, not always, British people are quite shy. But Americans, absolutely not. I mean, a hundred. Which I really like. I think that's a true cliche. <laughs> that's a true cliche. <laughs> we always say at author events, like they're not, you have to make sure you're asking a question and not just raising your hand and telling your own story to the author because I feel like that happens all the time. <laughs> well, I have, I have, been, I have had brilliant moderators who say, and I want you to all make sure there is a question mark at the end of what you said. Yes, which exactly. That's a good way to put, put it. it. So Hamnet came out at the end of March, and that is my first Maggie O'Farrell novel. And it came out at the end of March in, wait for it, the year of 2020. So your plague novel came out during our present day pandemic. Now we're a few, I mean, we're not past it, but we're a few years from that year. And I'm wondering, do you have any reflection on that novel and applying it to what we went through with COVID-19? Well, I would say that I, I absolutely didn't see it coming. And it What's the Actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was very strange, you know, because when I think back to March 2020, you know, I have a kind of, uh, there's a kind of marker for me how fast everything changed because I remember, you know, it was coming out at the end of March and we had this whole book tour planned and there was going to be a launch party at the Globe Theatre in London. It was all very exciting. And I bought a vintage dress for the launch party and I took it to the dry cleaners and then I thought, then in that week, it was about five days before I was due to pick it up. And in that time, in those five days when my dress was at the cleaners, everything was dismantled. You know, then they said, you know, there's this virus and the book tour is going to be cancelled and the launch party is cancelled. And it was so weird. You know, it was literally five days and the world kind of concept of the world changed. And I remember thinking, I better pick up the dress because people say this lockdown is going to last three weeks. My God, can you imagine? So, <laughs> yeah, but obviously right. it lasted a bit longer. So it, it was really strange. And I remember you know, having a conversation with my agent and she said, you know, bookshops are shut and online retailers are not shipping books, you know, and nothing's going to happen. This book is, isn't, it isn't going to be read by anyone. No, <laughs> you know, but the thing is, you know, and at the time, you know, of course it was a terrible blow. You thought, oh, but you know, it was the world's tiniest violin because, you know, the virus was, <laughs> right, right, right. The virus was sweeping across the world. There were people dying, you know, it's sure. awful. So I did think, you know, you just got to, be quiet and just get on with it. You know, you've got three home, you've got three kids to homeschool. Uh, so I just, but so, so that was a, you know, there was a surprise because first I thought, oh, there's going to be this launch party. And then they said, no, actually all the books are shut. No, we can't sell. No one's going to sell this book. And then, you know, well, people didn't read it. So it, it was very, like everything else at that time, it was all very peculiar and there were lots of U-turns and strange, strange incidents. Did something happen? I mean, I'm so curious did something happen? I mean, obviously, the book is a work of extreme genius, right? And Tim, I'll tell you very frankly that Tim said to me, Ellen, you need to read Hamnet. And I'm like, no, I don't like Shakespeare. I don't like historical fiction. I don't want to read about a plague. I am not reading Hamnet. And then I kept hearing about it 
mostly from people to like you have just take it and I think they gave it to me for free just take it home and read it <laughs> thank god because I'm like oh my goodness this book and that's what that's how I then hand sold it was I you know I don't like Shakespeare I don't like historical fiction it's about a plague I didn't want to just read it anyway because it is so 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 brilliant but did something happen or was it just word of mouth from booksellers how did it get into people's hands do you know I don't really know. I mean, well, I do know. I don't know if it was what it was like in the States, but I know that in Britain anyway, independent bookshops basically got themselves out there and people were selling. I mean, my local bookshop, the book, the owner was selling books basically on the pavement. She was standing in the doorway masked, you know, with a screen and she was selling it to people and she had people delivering books. I mean, I know because my son was one of them. She was delivering people that bought her on the telephone and deliver books by bicycle. So I think it was the independence. And then after that, I think people, you know, obviously everyone sort of rushed to get online so people could order it then. So I think it was that. And I think it must have been, I don't know, really. I think it was booksellers. Who knows? I, I actually don't know. It seems so long ago now. And actually the whole thing was so, it was very much at arm's length, you know. In a way, I think I was quite lucky, you know, because I think it would have been, it could have been quite destabilizing in a strange way to have that kind of response to your book. But in a way, I was very insulated from it because it was, I mean, like this, I was just talking to a person on the screen. I had no idea how many people were listening. And so it was was a a bit, actually, it was the least weird thing really that happened in 2020, really. Right. Hamnet has my favorite chapter that's ever existed. And it's that chapter that you connect how basically the plague ended up Uh, in. Yes, um, mine as well. uh, For the pestilence to reach Warwickshire. England in the summer of 1596, two events needed to occur in the lives of two separate people. And then these people needed to meet, right? That chapter is the most ingenious chapter. Love it. And now a short break to thank our sponsor, Book of the Month. Think of something awesome. Rain on a still roof, awesome. Or receiving mail that isn't a bill. That smell when cake is ready in the oven. Actually, I'm talking about Book of the Month. They're cooler than a frozen cucumber cool. Why? Not only is it cool to see a company so dedicated to fiction, they also feature the best new books, including some of my own, and are always spotlighting new and emerging authors. They're the best at helping people read more and read better. Everyone should try it. And for a limited time, get your first book for just $9.99 with offer code Ellen, E-L-I-N, by visiting bookofthemonth.com. I love Book of the Month. I've been a member since 2016. I get so excited to pick my title along with the community. And then when that blue box arrives, I get so excited. I've been a member since 2017. That is when they picked, I think, my first title, which was The Identicals. I have had numerous titles be Book of the Month picks, which it makes me so excited. It's it's the best feeling ever. They make a great gift. We both have gotten it for our mothers. Yes. It's perfect for someone who is any age, but perfect for someone who's older. My mom lives in a retirement community. It just comes to her her mail. It's so easy. I also get really excited because they do a book of the year and then the, all the members vote. Yeah. And I get so excited. And some of my favorite books have been chosen for that book of the year award. They also have added audiobooks in addition to their hardcovers, which members can choose, download, and listen to right on their app. Oh my gosh. That, people will love the audiobooks. That's amazing. So remember our, that call to action. Go to bookofthemonth.com and use code Ellen, E. L-I-N for a discount off your book. Wonderful. Okay, so your last two novels focus on historical figures, Agnes, Shakespeare's family, and then the marriage portrait with Lucrezia de Medici in Medici in Marriage Portrait. Is there a difference for you in creating characters that actually existed as opposed to ones that you have fully formed just out of your imagination? 
I think in a sense, yes. I think if you are going to choose to write about people who were real, even if they've been dead for 400, 500 years, you do have a responsibility to get it right. You know, I always had a, a rule with myself that I would try and find out as much as I possibly could about them. And, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, Agnes or Anne Hathaway and the Croatia and Hamnet all have in common is there actually isn't that much about them. They're, they are pretty, even though their lives are connected to extremely famous people, you know, Shakespeare or the, the House of the Medicis, actually they themselves have kind of fallen beneath the radar of documented history. So in a way, you know, but I think I, I, I was absolutely determined that I had to find out as much as I possibly could. Whatever was out there, I was going to find it. And even if I found something that didn't fit in with whatever story I wanted to tell, I had to find a way around that. I couldn't just pretend I hadn't read that essay or that book. So yes and no, but in one, in, you know, one way, yes, I think you do have a responsibility and there's a kind of ethical responsibility to get it right. But also there is, you know, they, these people are fiction. You know, they, I borrowed the names and the characteristics and the, if in some, most cases, the physical characteristics of the real people, but you know, they, they are still characters. And that's why I don't mention their surnames in the books and the word Shakespeare never appears in Hamlet. And I don't call her Lucretia de Medici. But the way I really wanted to approach both those novels, actually, I didn't want to have a kind of consciousness about that I was sitting down to write a historical novel with capital H, capital N. I just wanted to treat them as I would any other kind of novel. You know, I didn't I didn't want to change the kind of writer that I was in order to make allowances or have any kind of awareness that this was a different genre. I just it was just a story, you know, and I just wanted to tell it as I might any other thing. And I just wanted to concentrate on the plot and the structure and the characterizations and the way they interacted. And I think, you know, I did I did read a lot of historical novels. I mean, I have anyway, but I deliberately sort of avoided thinking about it as that. But I think what I did really learn actually is that the kind of historical novels that I like or admire are the ones that wear their history very lightly or wear their homework or their research very lightly. I don't really love the kind of historical novels that you feel that the writer is, you know, shoehorning as much of their research into them as they possibly can. Right. I think nothing turns me off or, you know, makes me shut a book faster than just too much information about Bakelite being an early plastic or how it was manufactured, you know, that kind of thing. It just, I find it so irritating. So I, I you know, I realised that in order to, to write a scene in a, say, a Renaissance salon, you have to know what everyone's wearing. You've got to know what the walls look like and what the floor's made of. You've got to know what the plates they're eating off look like. But in your final draft, what appears on the page in, in the covers of the book, only about maybe 1% of that should be showing. That's right. I think you're right. That's amazing. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am. You are the main character in that book, and it discusses your 17 brushes with death. At what brush of death did you realize it was becoming a thing? And <laughs> what made <laughs> what made you decide to write the memoir? And let's let's talk a little bit about that. Well, in a way, I it never I hadn't thought about it much until I started writing the book. And I, you know, I've always had the suspicion that actually it isn't you who chooses the books. The books choose you in a way. You know, I think I think the best book you can ever write is going to be the one you can't not write. It's the one that is tugging at your sleeve most insistently or calling your name the loudest. That's the one that you should be writing. And actually, I when I finished This Must Be The Place, I thought I should really start writing Hamlet, which is an idea I've had for a while. And I had what my family called my Shakespeare shelf, and I would buy more and more books about Shakespeare and I have them on the shelf. 
And actually, I was, you know, taking very meticulous sort of studenty notes from these biographies that I was reading. But in the back of that notebook, actually, what started happening is that these kind of long essays about times that I'd nearly died were being written, you know, <laughs> when the book was upside down. And after I'd written about the third one, I thought, something's going on here. <laughs> you know, I am supposed to be writing this novel about Shakespeare, but it was a bit like, you know, radio interference, when radio interference used to happen. You know, you think you're looking for one channel, but actually you're getting all this stuff from another channel. So, and at that point I thought, oh God, I really don't want to write a memoir. You know, I've never had any desire to do it. And I'm quite a private person, really. You know, I'm very, def- very fiercely ring fence my children's privacy, even though you've just said <laughs> I try, you know, you know and, I, and I never wanted to write the kind of memoir that is a, a tax on your friends and family. You know, sometimes I read right. biographies and, or autobiographies and they're horrifying about the way they talk about their nearest and dearest. I never wanted to write that kind of book, but actually coming up with the structure of the memoir which is, you know, non-chronological and it, they, it's sort of arranged by body part rather than time. Enable It was quite freeing in a way because you can, if you're doing that and you have these sort of series of connected stories that are about one theme and it's one lens through which to view a life, there are times you can feasibly avoid naming, say, your children or your friends or the only person in the book who has his actual name is my husband. So in that way, you know, it, it, it was my choice how much to reveal and how much not to. So there's an awful lot in the book, which is personal, but there's an awful lot in it. There's an awful lot which isn't in it, you know, which I managed to keep back. Of course. I mean, it was such a focused. It's not, autobiography is not the right word for it, right? So it's memoir, but it's just the one specific thing about you. And I, the thing that is so interesting, was so interesting to me is it's so suspenseful <laughs> and you feel such a like, what's going to end up happening? Is she going to make it? Even though obviously you wrote the memoir, so obviously you survive, but the way you write it is very, very suspenseful. I have a friend who calls oh. that book, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the blurb on the front of the cover. <laughs> I absolutely love asking authors about their characters because obviously to you both, they're real. And then if you do it right to your readers, they're so real. So if you could take any three of your characters and spend some time with them, who would they be? Oh, that's hard. I think I, I have a very s- special place in my heart for Esme Lennox, who is a 16-year-old protagonist of The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. I think, she, I think she needs a bit of looking after, so I'd quite like to hang out with her. I'd quite like to save her, actually, is really what I'd like to do. Who else? I think Daniel Solomon, her from This Must Be The Place, would be quite a good person to hang out with and maybe have a drink with. I agree. Mm-hmm. Not in a romantic way. We're, we're coming along. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I love him. I don't know. Who would be the third one? It feels bad. It feels like I'm being, I'm choosing and I'm rejecting the others. I don't know. I mean, you know who I, I like loved to, I, was I like, Aoife. I'd quite like to meet Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> be quite interesting. Wouldn't of course. I Ella loved, wouldn't. I loved Aoife. <laughs> Aoife from Instructions from a Heat Wave. Is that my saying her name right? That's right. Aoife. Yeah. Aoife? Yeah, that's exactly. Aoife. Yeah. And she has a special problem, which we're not going to tell you because every listener should be going out and buying all of your books, but <laughs> instruction, Instructions from a Heat Wave, I absolutely loved. We talk on this show a lot about social media and the, the role that social media plays now, nowadays in publishing. My understanding is that you're, are you even on social media at all, Maggie? I'm not. No. No, I'm really not at all. Yeah. How joyous, how joyous <laughs> does that make you? Well, does it make know, you joyous? I, I've never been on it, so I don't, I don't know. 
I mean, so much time you must have on your hands. I know. (laughs) I can't tell you the amount of time I waste just checking in with Bookstagram and posting and then, you know. So what is it that, what do you have that distracts you since it's not social media? I do. I mean, I think, you know, I've got nothing against social media per se. I just, I think I've always known in my heart that it's not really for me. And I... I'm lucky actually, you know, that I have very good and very active and publishers who will, you know, do the publicity for me. You know, I realized that obviously at different times in my career, I probably would have done it. And I realized not everybody is as lucky as me. So I don't, I don't have any kind of, I don't, I'm not judging anybody for being on it at all, but I, I just always need, I think, I think it's partly to do with time, definitely, because I have three kids and life is quite busy. And I know that I know that phones and internet is very chronophagic. It's one of my favorite words. You know that word, stealing time. Uh, yeah. So wow, I think it's just that I'm a bit wary about that. <laughs> but also, I think it's to do with the amount of words. I think you only have so much petrol in your tank, so many words in your tank. And I, I think I would like to reserve them for my books in a way. Well, my books are my, my books are my presence out in the world. You know, that's that's those are the things I want to say. And actually, everything else belongs to my friends and family. Wonderful. It's oh, beautiful. Ellen asked this question to another guest and I'm going to steal it. And she, she writes books every summer on Nantucket and that's the thread that connects her novels. What's the thread that connects all of Maggie O'Farrell novels? And is there one? No idea. <laughs> I mean, I do think, I'm not sure about a thread, but I always have a sense or a kind of visual image of my books as a bit like Chinese boxes or those Matryoshka dolls. You know, the book that the predecessor for any book, the book that you're going to write next or the book that you are writing next comes out of it in a way. They kind of come out of each other like nesting dolls. Because I think with every book, there's a kind of, you have a huge learning curve and you learn a lot and you, you get a lot wrong and there's a lot that you excites you and a lot that frustrates you. And then when you finish that book, the thing I find anyway that spurs me on to writing another one is the urge to put all, everything that you've learned into practice. So I think in some ways every book is a reaction to its predecessor, but also a child of its predecessor. That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't really answer your question. I've given you a different answer, but <laughs> so I see it more like, yeah, Chinese boxes or Russian dolls rather than a thread, I think. And what about the screen for you? Do we have any adaptations on the horizon? So yes, Hamlet is the one that's furthest along at the moment. And that has been signed up with Amblin and Hero Pictures. Oh, I nice. mean, with Chloe Zhao as director. And Chloe and I are writing the screenplay together. And we do Ooh. have, there are two people who are hopefully going to play the leads, but I'm not allowed to tell you, so I'm, I'm afraid I can't. Right. No, absolutely right. That's what I'm saying. And that's quite exciting. But, you know, I think the thing with film is that it's great if it happens, but you have to just kind of go along for the ride. And yeah, it'll, it'll be exciting if it happens, but you never know. Yes. Obviously, so obviously everything has been uh, in abeyance because of the, the writer's strike. So hopefully we're going to get back to work soon. So it's very clear that Ellen and I are huge fans of your writing. Who are your North Stars? Who would Whose grocery list would you read? <laughs> well, I would love to read Alice Munro's great grocery list. I read everything she... <laughs> <laughs> and Margaret Atwood, I really love. And Patchett, I'm a huge fan of. Elizabeth Strout, William Boyd. Who else do I always read? There's, um, Donald Ryan, I think, is a fantastic writer. Claire Keegan from Ireland and Enright. So, yes, yeah, there's Enright. so much amazing fiction coming out. I read a brilliant book called A Girl with a Louding Voice by someone called Abby Doré, which is a, a really fantastic novel. I mean, not an easy read, but fantastic, beautifully told. So 
Yes, I, I read everything. Actually, I'm pretty voracious, so I, I'd read things all the time. I just picked up Anne Enright's The Ren Ren when I was in Ireland, oh, and nice. it looks so good. I can't wait to read it. And then finally, our final question for you, Maggie, before we let you go on your French holiday, which I'm <laughs> envious. What are you working on right now? And you don't have to say very specifically, but are you writing another book? Say please, yes. <laughs> I am, yes. I'm about halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way through a first draft. Um, but I can't say the words of that, I'm afraid, because I have no, a very... I have a don't. I have this super. I have this worry that if I talk about something I haven't finished, then I'll be somehow drained of the urge to write it. So I'm afraid it's yeah. serious. But I can say that I am writing something there and having okay, having good. fun with it as well. Well, we can't wait to read we it. Can't we're, wait. <laughs> we're so excited, <laughs> Maggie. Thank you so much for taking thank the you. time today. No, totally. It is a dream come true it's really for us. Nice, really nice to meet you both. You too. Have the best time on holiday. Thank you. We and will. I hope we can get you to Nantucket sometime this. I would um, love it. Sometime and I'd on love a tour. To come. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Maggie. Hi, book lovers. Ellen Hildebrand. And Tim Ehrenberg. Here again. Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the making of this show. And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy. We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and happy, happy reading. reading.